My name is Diret Ladi, Principal State Law Advisor for International Law in the Department of International Relations and Cooperation of South Africa. Um, and today I will talk to you about conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity in marine areas beyond national jurisdiction. The starting point for any discussion on marine uh, biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction, of course, is the Convention. The Convention, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, uh, was adopted in 1982 after a marathon session of the UN Conference on the Law of the Sea, which started in the early 1970s. Uh, the Convention entered into force in 1994. Um, it is a truly monumental achievement in lawmaking, just in the sense of its comprehensiveness and the extent to which it deals with issues relating to oceans and the law of the sea. The Convention is often proclaimed as the Constitution for the Oceans, um, as the framework within which all activities in the oceans are to be governed. The purpose of my lecture today is to examine how the Convention, this Constitution for the Oceans, the framework within which all activities in the oceans are to be governed, how it regulates biodiversity in marine areas beyond national jurisdiction. And there are two particular aspects of the regulation of biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction that I wish to speak about today. The first one is measures to preserve and conserve marine biological diversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction. The second one is the legal regime applicable to marine genetic resources in areas beyond national jurisdiction, and in particular, the deep seabed. In looking at these two areas, I will identify certain gaps, and on that basis pose the question whether it is appropriate to refer to the Convention as the Constitution for the Oceans. In order to understand how the Convention regulates biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction, it is important to understand the basic structure of the Convention, its essential logic, so to speak. It is this structure that determines how resources in the oceans are to be governed and regulated. Essentially, the Convention adopts a zonal approach and structure and logic. In other words, how resources are to be governed is determined primarily by the zone in which the resources are to be found rather than the nature of the resource. So in other words, in order to determine what the rights, obligation and responsibilities of states are with respect to a specific resource, the primary question that one has to ask is where is that resource to be found? So it is very important then to understand the different maritime zones that are created by the Convention. And essentially, the Convention establishes five different maritime zones. The first is the territorial waters, and the territorial waters is measured 12 nautical miles from a baseline to be established in accordance with the Convention. And here, the coastal state is essentially sovereign. The second maritime zone is the exclusive economic zone, and the exclusive economic zone is measured from the very same baseline, 200 nautical miles from this baseline. And here, the coastal state exercises sovereign rights over the resources. The third um, maritime zone that is established by the Convention is the continental shelf, which is essentially the land mass beneath the ocean, measuring 200 nautical miles from the same baseline from which um, the territorial waters is measured. There's always a possibility for extension, 
but that is a whole different lecture. These three maritime zones are essentially maritime zones within areas of national jurisdiction and for the purposes of our discussion we will say no more about them. In these three maritime zones the coastal state exercises varying degrees of sovereign rights and sovereignty with respect to um, the resources. The high seas, which refers to the water column above the seafloor beyond 200 nautical miles from the baseline from which the territorial sea is measured, is the first maritime zone in areas beyond national jurisdiction. And here, the convention creates as a basic rule the freedom of the high seas, which means that states and vessels under their jurisdiction are free and legally entitled to equal access to the resources. This particular um, regulation of the maritime zone, for example, provides for freedom of fishing, uh, freedom to lay cables, uh, freedom of navigation, and so on. The next maritime zone that is created by the convention is the deep seabed. Um, the deep seabed is referred to in the convention as the area, area with a capital A. And this essentially refers to the seafloor beyond the continental shelf. So the regime that is established um, in the area is referred to by the convention as the common heritage of mankind, which means that the resources as a, ba as a basic rules are for the benefit of all of mankind. This is the basic structure. And I think with this basic structure, we can now turn to look at these two issues under consideration. The first issue is the measures to protect and conserve the environment. Throughout the convention, there are a number of provisions relating to environmental protection. You have pr provisions in the convention in part five of the convention, which relates to the exclusive economic zone. You have um, some provisions in part seven, which deal with the high seas. You have provisions in part 11, which deals with the area, the common heritage of mankind. You have some provisions in part 13, which deal with marine scientific research. So all of these areas, of course, deal with um, um, the protection of, of um, the um, marine environment. But specifically and most importantly, part 12 of the convention is a part dedicated exclusively for the protection and preservation of the marine environment. It is not zone specific and applies to all the zones. Part 12, and this is just to give you a flavor of um, how comprehensive part 12 is, contains more than 45 articles. The very first article in part 12 is article 192, and it provides for a general obligation on states to, quote, protect and preserve the marine environment. The various provisions dealing with the protection and preservation of the marine environment oblige states to, quote, take measures to prevent pollution from a wide array of sources, as well as the duty to monitor and assess environmental impacts of assessment. These measures are to be taken by states individually or collectively. So in other words, states can enter into other agreements, whether bilateral, plurilateral, or multilateral, in order to meet the general objectives of the convention. Nonetheless, even with all of these provisions, the environmental provisions in the convention are regarded by many as insufficient to ensure adequate protection of the marine environment, particularly with regard to areas beyond national jurisdiction and the high seas. And there are two main reasons, at least two main legal reasons for the inadequacies. The first one is that the provisions 
are not sufficiently detailed. They refer to measures and oblige states to take measures without specifying precisely what measures. So essentially, the measures that are to be, to be adopted are to be determined by states themselves. Secondly, and most importantly, any measures so adopted, whether individually or collectively, because of the freedom of the high seas, will apply only to those states and vessels that have specifically adopted them or agreed to them. A concrete example of this is the OSPA, the Oslo Paris Convention, which in 2010 adopted several marine protected areas, some of them in areas beyond national jurisdiction. And in the same year, in the same year, year Norway, on behalf of OSPA, requested the General Assembly to welcome this development. But many states were reluctant and, in fact, did not agree to welcoming this, simply because, on the basis of the freedom of the high seas, the argument was to welcome such an initiative in areas beyond national jurisdiction, even though, though not legally binding, would in fact create an expectation um, that states have to comply with the measures implied by the marine protected areas. Therefore, while the Convention has important provisions applicable to marine biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction, on their own, these provisions are inadequate. Given these critical gaps, it may well be asked whether it is appropriate to characterize the Convention as a constitution for the oceans. Questions of a different nature but which lead to the same conclusion can in fact be asked with respect to marine genetic resources in the deep seabed. The legal regime applicable to marine genetic resources in the deep seabed is an issue which is not fully and clearly regulated by the Convention. The deep seabed, which is referred to in the Convention as the area, again with a capital A, is governed by Part 11 of the Convention. And the regime that is instituted there is the common heritage of mankind, which means that the resources are supposed to be for the benefit of all of humanity. So there's no first come, first serve rule there. The problem, however, is that Article 133 of the Convention provides that for the purposes of Part 11, resources means mineral resources. So essentially, this excludes marine genetic resources from the definition. On the basis of this, some states have argued that in fact Part 11 does not apply to marine genetic resources on the deep seabed and that instead what applies is Part 7 of the Convention, in other words, freedom of the high seas, which would be a first come, first serve. So those states that are technologically capable of exploiting the resources or the marine genetic resources will enjoy the benefit. The first problem with this is, of course, that it goes against the very logic of the Convention, which, as we said, was based on maritime zones, because what it does is it takes the legal principles applicable to one zone, the high seas, and applies them to another zone, um, the area or the deep seabed. Furthermore, even though Article 136 does in fact provide that not, um, that even though Article 133 provides that resources means mineral resources. Article 136 provides something else. It provides that not only the resources, but in fact the area and its resources are the common heritage of mankind. Now, there are of course many layers to this argument, and it's not necessary to go into all of these layers. But even if one peels back all the layers, 
what becomes clear is that the convention does not adequately regulate marine genetic resources on the deep seabed and that there is in fact a governance gap with respect to that issue. The gaps relating to the protection and preservation of biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction and also the question of the legal regime applicable to marine genetic resources in the deep seabed does raise questions about the characterization of the convention as the constitution for the oceans and the appropriateness of this characterization. However, in assessing the convention, it should be borne in mind what the convention purports and does not purport to do. It does not purport to provide a detailed regulation of every aspect of the oceans. Rather, it aspires to create what it itself says is, quote, a legal order for the seas, unquote and it establishes a constitutional framework for oceans governance. Like any constitution, therefore, the convention provides for a structural framework, broad objectives, high-level norms, the details of which can be worked out through other international lawmaking avenues. Like any other framework instrument, the convention embraces and in fact requires the further development of its norms. Many provisions of the Convention, for example, provide for states to take collective measures. Taking collective measures means reaching further agreements to give effect to the objectives of the Convention. Also, while Article 311 of the Convention reserves a place of primacy for itself, it does recognize the validity of other international instruments as long as they are not inconsistent with the objectives of the Convention. Thus, in assessing particularly with respect to the protection and preservation of the marine environment in areas beyond national jurisdiction, the usefulness of the Convention, the whole spectrum of ocean regulation that form part of the mosaic of the regulatory framework of the Convention has to be considered. These include regional uh, arrangements such as OSPAR, but also includes multilateral agreements which regulate some aspects of ocean's issues like the Convention on Biological Diversity, the Fish Stocks Agreement, which is in fact an implementing agreement under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and also CITES. Also, sectoral arrangements such as the IMO's agreements, like uh, the Dumping Convention, for example, also form part of this mosaic. Finally, the General Assembly activities also contribute to the further development of the normative framework that is underpinned by the Convention. And there's just two examples that one can give to show how the General Assembly contributes to this evolution. In 2006, the General Assembly, by resolution, called for states to prohibit bottom fishing in areas of vulnerable marine ecosystems unless there was a conservation and management plan in place. So while the resolution itself is not binding as a matter of law, it is seen as an important development of the precautionary principle, which is an important principle in this mosaic. The other example is recently, in 2011, um, the General Assembly launched a process which could lead to the elaboration of an implementing agreement specifically to deal with both of the issues that we've been talking about today, so the protection and preservation of marine uh, biodiversity in areas beyond national jurisdiction, as well as the question of marine genetic resources on the deep seabed and the applicable legal regime. All of these agreements, arrangements, and initiatives, all of them, form part of the framework that is established by the Convention 
and the adoption of an implementing agreement to cover whatever normative gaps may exist should be welcome. Thank you very much.